Hi, my name's Hudson, and I'm a geoholic. A little different vibe on that one. How about that, guys? Welcome to the uh, Church of Bubbles, let's call it. <laughs> I am so stoked about this week's episode, so much so that I actually had to double up on Zoloft today, just to kind of like <laughs> manage my emotions. Uh, welcome, everyone, to episode 51, also known as the... The Randy Johnson, oh, the geez. big unit. Uh, mm. Had to go with that one. Found out he was born September 10th, 1963, so mm. he is exactly 50 years older than my son. Same birthday. Oh, well. Uh, 22 seasons in the big league, six teams, 303 career wins, second all-time on the strikeouts with 4875, 10-time All-Star, five-time Cy Young, World Series in 2001, was the co-MVP with the Diamondbacks and Kurt Schilling, perfect game in 2004, uh, Diamondbacks have retired as number 51, Seattle Mariners Hall of Fame, first ballot Hall of Famer in 2015, 97.3% of the vote. Wow. The big unit. Big unit. And we got a couple of honorable mentions. Since you guys are all Chicagoans. Butkus. Yep. Absolutely. And then you can't forget E. Terrell. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Those are all good ones for sure. I love the, what's the, the Randy Johnson story when he hits the bird? Oh, yeah. yeah. That that's was the same as the, yeah, the that's dove in spring training. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to the Geoholics podcast. And as always, please consider joining the Geoholics fan club. We've got two options now. Option one is if you want to make a $25 contribution to the Geoholics GoFundMe account, Big Shoots will personally send you a Geoholics t-shirt, a wristband, a sticker, a koozie, and a temporary tattoo courtesy of Diamondback Land Surveying. Option two is make a $50 contribution and you'll receive double all the above and a Geoholics pint class. And guess what? Hmm. We need to give Scott Young with the Starfire Group a shout out. He, uh, Scott made a very generous contribution. Let's just say that. All righty. So we'll be getting a package out to him very shortly. That opening number, of course, is Talking Heads, Road to Nowhere, uh, an American rock band formed in 1975. Jesus, I'm old. In New York City, composed of David Byrne, Chris France, Tina Weymouth, Jerry Harrison, described as one of the most critically acclaimed bands of the 80s. Talking Heads were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002 and were ranked number 64 on VH1's list of 100 greatest artists of all time. There we have it. Let's uh, give a shout out to our friends of the program. Let's start out with Bad Elf GPS, badelf.com. They are successfully developing high-accuracy GPS receivers for all-day data collection. Thanks to Dr. Nick Smolowski for his Bad Elf Tech Minutes that you hear each and every week before the show. And if you mentioned that you heard about the Flex receiver on the Geoholics, you'll receive 100 bucks off your purchase and a kick-ass fitted Bad Elf hat. All right, a kick-ass hat. Uh, Land Surveyors United is the largest global community of geomatics professionals on the internet with 17,000 members. Justin Farrow has developed a heck of a website, landsurveyorsunited.com. Take five minutes, visit the site, become a member, and he is also the man that made the Geoholics app. 
Yes, he is. Download that. Everything's right at your fingertips. The LiDAR News, the virtual home of the LiDAR industry. They strive to provide their readers and sponsors with the most current information about 3D laser scanning, LiDAR, unmanned aerial systems, and photogrammetry. The LiDAR News team focuses on the application of technology to solve 3D problems. Check them out at LiDARnews.com. Parkland College Land Survey Program in Champaign, Illinois. Our guests can go check it out in person before we can. Two schedule options, which provide opportunities to both traditional and working adults to achieve a certificate or associate's degree in land surveying. More information, parkland.edu slash surveying. Next, we have Unifly, U-N-I-F-L-I. Scott Ohana and his team have developed a one-stop UAV shop. Check them out at unifli.aero. And be sure to click on the How We Work drop-down. Diamondback Land Surveying. Mr. Trent Keenan, specializing in residential, commercial, and public works projects. Corporate office is located in Las Vegas, but he's licensed to work across the West. Also a proud sponsor and brand ambassador of Get Kids Into Survey. Diamondbacklandsurveying.com and GetKidsIntoSurvey.com. And shameless plug, free plug in this case, don't get used to it. Check out Trent's Mentoring Mondays on Facebook and LinkedIn. He's got, uh, he's got a really cool thing going there that just started this past week. Advanced Geodetic Surveys, Inc. You can find them at agsgps.com. Unbeatable deals on new and used equipment, equipment rentals, and supplies. In fact, if you go to agsgps.com, gps.com forward slash shop and use promo code geo 15 you'll receive 15 percent off all regular price field supplies accessories and safety equipment also tiger supplies a surveying construction and engineering superstore with over 15,000 products featuring top brands such as leica topcon spectra and much more tiger will get you the equipment you need to get the job done right Use coupon code GEO15 for 15% off any Adair Pro item, including dry pod, bleh, tripods, bipods, prisms, prism poles, flagging tape, survey markers, and much more. Also, don't forget to check out their YouTube page for product videos, tips, and tricks. Good guys over there at Tiger Supplies. Next, we have Cyanic Automation. If anyone is interested in uh, finding some help running the day-to-day operations like collecting daily work records, timesheets, preparing timesheets in the field, automating invoicing, and searching jobs by maps and legal addresses, go check out Cyanic Automation's job book. It's software built for surveyors. Go to getjobbook.com, all one word, and see if it's something that would help your company. Tom, you heard about it on the G-Hawks. They'll give you 20% off your first year subscription. Wow, we got that uh, got through that completely un- uneventful. That was good. That <laughs> Just was good. one bleh. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. We are uh, we're back in the Beat Lab studio, better known as PJ's uh, kitchen. <laughs> thanks, PJ, for uh, allowing us to be here. Of course. Thanks for saving me some of the uh, some of the mellow corn. I appreciate it. Of course. I course. thought for sure that was going to be gone. Uh, let's catch up the boys a little bit. Producer Jake, how are you now? Doing good, guys. Um, I want to keep this really short because I want to make sure we get to our <laughs> guests. This has been definitely been one of my highly anticipated episodes. Um, just talk a little bit. I know we're going to talk a lot about the documentary. Um, talking a little bit just about how we found out about this documentary. Um, we were, it was earlier this summer. I think we were over at your house um, for Father's Day or something like that. And we were just sit down on the TV and we're on YouTube just looking at sailing videos, different cats we were looking at and just all different boats. And um, we got up and went to go play like card games or something at the table and the TV kept on. So what YouTube does, it just keeps suggesting videos one after another that are similar to the one that you're watching. And eventually we keep looking up from the table. We're playing this game. We're like, what is going on? What is this video? And it's this long video. And we keep looking up here and there. And it was super interesting, just the different visuals and how it was shot and everything. 
eventually we sit back down and we're looking at it and we pull it back up and we're like this is documentary on sailing and we we watched the whole thing and we're like what the hell like yeah. that was awesome it was amazing so yeah. i mean ever since we've been hooked i watched it four or five times as well um i also after that went and got my <laughs> my sailing certificate my dad did my brother did we've been sailing this summer so um really cool thing to start off the summer and like definitely my best Best watch, probably movie and documentary of the year so far. Yeah, no question. I was going to ask you, I'm glad you brought it up. Was that, like, did that influence you as far as going ahead and getting the sailing certificate and everything? Yeah, I mean, or we it was something we talked about, my brother and my dad, for a while, and it was had to be, like, the perfect time to where we were done with school and we could start that because we want to go out and do BVI and these big, um, bigger sails. But um, that was definitely kicked us into gear after seeing that. We're like, wow, like, let's get out in there and, like, do this. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Awesome. That's high praise you're handing out right yeah. there. It is. These it guys, is. These guys are blushing. <laughs> <laughs> it's big deal. Well, I, I got to throw it out there. Just get it out of the way. I am a proud dad. The man is seven years old now. As wow. I said, it was the 10th with uh, Randy Johnson. He shared that. So uh, big Harry Potter birthday party. I got to give a free plug shout out to Leah Bakes AZ is her website or Facebook or something. Amazing cakes. I sent you a picture. We'll you have did. To throw yeah, it those out. were in- unbelievable. We'll throw them out on our social media and yes, let people will. check them out. It was a great time. Uh, you know, unfortunately, COVID times, it was just mm-hmm. family, not really the friends allowed, but uh, still made the best of it. So that was my eventful week. How about you, Kent? Um, let's see. What do I got? Well, as you guys know, I, um, I'm doing the... As m- I'm trying to boycott professional sports as best <laughs> as I can. Um, that's my intention. Um, except those games that I have money on. I'm watching those games. So that being said, I just got to say it. Steven Guskowski, the Tennessee field goal kicker, the guy's got to be on the take. Am I right, Jake? <laughs> He's got to be on the take. Prove <laughs> me wrong on this. So I bet Tennessee minus three, meaning they need to win by more than three points, right? Which, in my opinion, was an absolute gift in this case. So... Steven Guskowski, he misses during, throughout the game, three field goals and an extra point all during the game, right? So that's 10 points he was personally responsible for, right? End of the game, fourth quarter, they're down by one, driving, final minutes of the game. Um, a TD wins the bet, right? So they get down to the five-yard line. I'm like, oh, my God, well, I'm still going to somehow win this bet, right? <laughs> well, unfortunately, they end up having to kick a field goal, which, of course... Steven Possum Guskowski makes to win the game by two. So I lose the bet. Well, Jake, we both lost the bet yeah. in that mm-hmm. case. But and, and keep in mind, these field goals were not anything super long, and we're in Denver, so you should be able to kick this yeah. thing to Mars. I have never seen such a poor showing by a field goal kicker. Mm-hmm. So. On his first day on oh, the job it was it was with awful. a new team. Those are the games that say, why do you bet on sports? Stop it. You know, <laughs> just keep going back to the well, I guess. I hey, don't know. you got to learn your lesson sometime. Absolutely. Let's move on to the safety apparel, safety share. Matthew Stansberry has developed the best safety vest on the planet, a.k.a. the party chief, designed by surveyors, made for everyone. You can check them out at safetyapparel.us. And uh, producer Jake, he's got our safety share this evening. Yeah, I got one that's uh, pretty topical to sailing and then also topical to being out here in uh, Arizona in the desert. Um, one of the first things that we learned when we got out of there on the boat is that you can, it, it's pretty hot out here, but you don't necessarily feel how hot it is with that wind blowing on you and, and not drinking enough water. Um, when you're sweating, you don't sweat like how you sweat like if we were sweating in this room. With that wind, it just, it, before it can even bead on you, it just right, evapor- yeah, evaporates right off. So it's, it can sneak up on you because you don't think that you're, losing any sort of water like that. So like the importance of really when you're out there um, sipping all day, even if you don't think you're thirsty, just sip, 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 um, because you're losing a lot more water than you, what you think. 
So I'm curious if you're like, let's say you're out in the ocean, right? And you get stranded and you have nothing to drink. Are you drinking ocean water? No, that'll I don't you. think so. I, okay, well, that's what I'm saying. I, what do you I'm do? A, you I'm, a, like a, I'm a late guy. You're going to have to defer that question to our, to our guest today. <laughs> the experts. But yeah, I think uh, it, if uh, it came down to it and we were stranded in the lake, I think you'd be probably okay you'd probably drinking okay, the, yeah. at least the first foot or so of the lake water. Yeah. Not anything too down, you too might, low. You might get the shits or something. Yeah, but exactly. You'll be, okay. you'll be okay. But the salt, I'm, I, I think that doesn't, doesn't that like dehydrate you more or something? I, I, I just know it's not good to drink yeah. salt water. Yeah. I don't think so, it is. But Absolutely. So watering your gut keeps you off your butt, right? There you go. <laughs> All right. Before we introduce our guests, I got to set the stage for this episode. Um, so we talked about it already a little bit. If you've been listening for a bit, you know that we are total fanboys of a documentary titled Chasing Bubbles. I've watched it five times now, as a matter of fact. I watched it again this morning. Uh, the plot of this, I'm going to call it a masterpiece, uh, revolves around the unbelievable journey that Alex Rust and a number of his closest friends embarked on. The year was, I believe, 2008. Alex was uh, 28 at the time and had a, he had a successful career at the Chicago Board of Trade when he made this crazy decision to put his normal, uneventful life on pause and <laughs> sail around the world, right? The, the thing is, he had zero sailing experience whatsoever. Didn't even own a boat, I don't believe. This is truly, in my opinion, a, uh, an unbelievable story. And, um, you know, we're humbled and honored to have Ross Gerber and Topher Cochran with us. Both played huge but very different roles in bringing the documentary to life. So I'm super excited to talk to these guys. Ross and Topher, thanks so much for being here. We, uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really looking forward to this conversation. So let's let's just jump right into it. So you know, to say that Alex was like a, a free spirited, you know, adventure and had an adventurous soul, I think, would be an understatement. Um, um, let's start with you, Ross. Talk about how how were you introduced to Alex and what was your involvement with Chasing Bubbles? So I um I was introduced to Alex through um, a great buddy of mine, Tom Rickmeyer. I was living with, right after college, I lived with him in Chicago. And um, he worked at a high frequency trading firm. Um, he he came home one day from work and he was like, this guy started at our company and he, he came into training two hours late, which like people are there an hour early. It's like a sought after job. And the, the trainer was like, you better have a really good excuse for being two hours late on day one. And he was like, I was at the running of the bulls last night. I got gored. I flew in and I got here at like two in the morning. And he's like, in, he's from Southern Indiana. So he was like, yeah. in Indiana, we got Walmarts that are like everywhere. They're 24 hours. So he's like, I was planning to go to Walmart to buy some clothes to wear to day one. He said, because I have no other clothes. And the, the only Walmart is a little ways outside of town. So he tried to get back into town and he was like two hours late and he had folded up clothes, Walmart clothes on him. Um, the guy was like, good excuse, but um don't let it happen again but my friend was like you got to meet this guy he's just a wild man and uh <laughs> i met him and he was he had a trip planned to cuba and i had a trip planned to cuba and we hmm. combined our trips and we were buddies since then wow that's awesome uh how about you tover i uh <clears throat> was at a party on the north side of chicago um uh right near wrigley field uh I think we'd gone to see a police concert at Wrigley Field. Nice. And um, we were at a party afterwards at our friend's house, our friend Mitch's house. And uh, Ross and Alex were both there. And uh, this guy, Alex, was talking about um, 
how he wanted to go to Cuba, which at the time was difficult to do. Um, and he was like, oh, no, it's no problem. We'll just go to South Florida and get a little boat on Craigslist. And just it's only 90 miles. You know, we'll be there in an hour and a half. <laughs> Something like that. Um, so awesome. And uh, I, I was like, this is amazing. Uh, you know, I want to find out what this guy's story is. And then out of that, actually, uh, Ross was like, yo, you're into sailing? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And Ross and I started sailing together in Chicago. Um, and Alex went off to Alex and Ross went off to kind of do the first leg of their journey um, down in the Caribbean uh, on this. What we, in the movie, we called it the Flying Sea Monkey. It boat That's had right. a few different names. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I sort of had encouraged Alex early on. I'm like, we got to you should make a film about this and document that this and that that wasn't the only time he'd heard that idea. He I think at one point he had hopes of, you know, making a TV show that he could put on the Discovery Channel or something. Sure. As you, you know, if you've seen the movie, you can see he just sort of tried to film every little bit that he could. And digital video technology was just sort of evolving at that time. That was 2008, right. 2009. So, you know, flip cameras were ubiquitous and GoPros were just starting to come. So sort of like HD capable point and shoot video was new um, and yeah. everywhere. Um, so the movie is as much about making a movie with, you know, an iPhone as it is sailing around the world. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So Topher, you, you knew about the journey before it happened, right? Oh yeah. yeah we yeah. were, uh, kind of within our crew of friends, uh, we were all following along on Facebook and, yeah. you know, uh, Ross would go on and do a leg that Ross did went and sailed across the Pacific and then went back to do another leg. And, um, you know, a bunch of our friends were flying out to go do, you know, join bubbles at different places on the planet and sail across different oceans or different passages. Yeah. Um, so we were all following along. And then every time Alex got to a port, He'd post up all his stills on a Facebook album, which, you know, back in the day, you'd throw up 20, al 20 photos and create an album. And that'd be a, a Facebook news story, if you will, back then. Um, so that, yeah, I, I was just following along, but I didn't pick up the documentary really until he got back. So, it's, but I, I, I wasn't wrong saying that when, like, when Alex started this, this adventure, I mean, he really had like zero sailing experience and, and you who had a little bit of sailing experience were the most experienced person at that point in time. Right. Yeah. I, he, um, I don't know how many times he had sailed before he bought his boat. I'm sure I'm guessing he had been on a sailboat before, but I, he may not have been. Um, but yeah, he bought his boat and then he called me and said I needed to come down to teach him how to sail. And, um, his girlfriend had not sailed before. I don't think. And they, they were just partying on the boat once they bought it. So yeah. they, they didn't, I mean, we had an argument about like the tenants of sailing on like, if you should pull the sail in or let it out when something was happening, it was like, I mean, it's like the ABCs of sailing. We yeah. were like, we had, we had an argument, not a, the, you know, terrible argument, but like, yeah. uh, very much. He did not know the tenants of sailing at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, he Alex was a grip it and rip it kind of guy. He he wasn't gonna let someone tell you that you should wait to do something. You know, I right. he he was gonna learn by experience and he was gonna do everything as early as he could um, because you know he sort of lived by this philosophy that you know we only get one shot at this life and you better just go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there was literally a copy of Sailing for Dummies. On, on the boat, right? <laughs> and they were, you guys are referencing that along the way. 
so yeah, funny. That is, that is true. We were, the things would be looked up. Oh my God. That's awesome. Um, so at what point did you, like you, you, you did that first stint with him and like, mm-hmm. and then he, he sold that boat and he bought bubbles, a much larger, I don't know how much larger, but I think it was like 39 feet if I remember right. Um, more, I guess, ocean worthy is my understanding. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, at what point did he say, all right, I can do this. And were, were, were you, were you part of that decision? I think, I mean, his, he had the intention uh, to do it, I think all along. Mm-hmm. And when we were sailing, he was, he was messaging me as he was, cause I left, it was the wild sea monkey. I left the wild sea monkey. And then he would, he was messaging me like, Hey man, we we're going to do this. And I was like, I'm not going to cross the ocean with you unless you get a bigger boat. Cause we would like the wild sea monkey was not made for, for ocean crossing. So he did. Um, so then he upgraded. And at that point I was like, well, I can't say no, that was kind of what was holding me back. So, um, yeah. then I was ready to do it. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, so the six months that you were on board, was that six months straight or was it in increments? It was increments. So there was, I was on, um, you know, and I, I'm counting the wild sea monkey in that too. So I was, sure. did like three weeks on the wild sea monkey. Then I did like just about four months, um, from Columbia through the Panama canal to the Galapagos and then French Polynesia. And then I, I left the boat there and then I came back in um, Madagascar and sailed for like two and a half or three weeks. And then I did um, the round the world party for like about the same amount of time wow. in uh, the Caribbean and St. Yeah. St. Martin. So yeah, few different, uh, probably four or five, well, three or four different legs on the boat, but yeah, all awesome times. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the things that stick out in your mind um, as far as experiences that you had? Um, I mean, there were, t- there was a ton of things. Every that, day was an experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there was a lot that blurred together, but they were, I mean, I think for, for me, probably the biggest, um, what a lot, one of the wildest things was after we crossed the Pacific, like we had been sailing for 19 days at that point in time. Hmm. And it was a little, it was stress, like stressful in a, in like a low stress sort of way. Um, but constant, um, but you could, we, we sailed in at night and you could like smell the Island before you could like really, it was incredible how like far, like just seeing, smelling like fresh vegetation that you hadn't, you just had canned food and rice and nothing else and no other smell for like so long. So that was, I think that was for sure one of the, the highlights or just like one of the most memorable moments and just seeing, I mean, there are incredible islands and giant whales and sharks, and that sort of shit that you'd see. Yeah. So um, all of those things and in some insane, you know, some of the biggest waves you'd ever see. Hmm. Um, yeah. There were, I mean, I probably could talk for the next hour about things like that, but yeah. a lot of wild experiences. Right, right. And the uh, and the different cultures that you got to experience and take part in. I mean, when I'm watching the, when I'm watching the documentary, and that's one of the things that really sticks out to me is like, you know, just to have have the opportunity to, you know, inject yourself into those different cultures is just, you know, you can't put a price tag on being able to do something like that. I think I think that was yeah. actually when when we talked about how we were sitting there at the game table playing cards and we looked over at the TV and we're like, what the heck is on TV? It yeah. was that moment, and I think it was uh, I don't know which country or island this was, but there was a bunch of little kids yeah. running around on the boat, jumping off the boat, climbing on the boat, and we're looking at it and we're like, what is this? What is this? And that's one of the things that intrigued us is like that kind of like culturey aspect of it. Yeah, that's a great um, shot. Yeah, where the kids are yelling hallelujah and and yep. jumping off the side of the boat. Yeah, that's an amazing shot. That's in Papua <laughs> New Guinea. And that's not oh, just that's about right. the, the kids there. I mean, that was about kind of who Alex was, too. I mean, he was a really magnetic guy who he his father was, in addition to a businessman, kind of a preacher and like really was interested in like kind of pulling in 
people and talking to mm-hmm. people. So Alex had some of that in him, and you know, he, he really everywhere he went, he really wanted to recruit around him. Mm-hmm. And just talking about the shot there too, I feel like what makes that or the whole documentary and whole just so powerful is that like I feel like with some documentaries, especially when it comes to sailing, people will go sailing to make the documentary. Where this is almost like the reverse. Mm-hmm. Like he went sailing and the documentary followed. So like yep. it was very point and shoot. There was a, a bit where he showed the different uh, cameras he was using, and they were literally point and shoot. So it wasn't that he was going out there and to make this. Like I, it, at least it feels to where this kind of just followed along. It's kind of like organic, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is is, that, is yeah. that accurate? <laughs> oh yeah, that was um, no. It was. I mean, you would you would go to meet him somewhere, and he would he'd pick you up, and there yeah there'd be like a family of people. He'd been on the island for two days, and he had like a family there, and like the chief <laughs> the chief on the island or wherever you were at were like yeah. they were. They were like, oh, no, we're staying at this guy's place. He's the, he works or he would end up going to jail for some reason. And he'd be like, man, I just, I met some real great guys in jail and they got a party going on. And uh, <laughs> you'd go to a party and you'd be with like all the coolest people at the party because one of his buddies that he met, like, because he got in trouble for like standing on top of a car or something. You know, he wasn't like going, it was like for, for having too much fun, he would get in trouble for. Um, but then, yeah, he would be friends with kind of like anyone. And that was who he was. And it was, he much preferred um, spending time with people um, just like your normal everyday people, as opposed to, I think, people in other positions or just more, more so the rural life than the city life, I'd, I'd say would be a, a better description. But that was that was very much who he was. And I think the film captured that pretty oh, yeah. well. So yeah. I just love to meet people. For sure. For sure. Um, so let's, let's talk just a little bit about Bubbles. Uh, it wasn't really like the, the Taj Mahal of sailboats by any means. Um, <laughs> What was what was a typical day like on board? I mean, when you're when you're on the water, what what what's that like? Is it a big party? <laughs> well, I think um, people that people that knew us on land, I think, thought that we partied the entire way across the ocean. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't. It, yeah, we had we had a fun time when we were on land. But it, I mean, it, it wasn't like we were partying every night. But a lot of the sailing and cruising culture, like you're having drinks with people most nights. That's just what you're doing, you know. Um, but when we were sailing, we didn't, um, I, you're, you're rocking so much on a boat and I do actually, like, I don't get seasick, but I puked like <laughs> seven. The only time I puked was like seven days into the trip yeah. or into the Pacific crossing. We were in the middle of the Pacific ocean. I puked for the first time on a boat in like 10 years. Wow. And it wasn't because the conditions were that bad, but it was, you're rocking the whole time. And we wouldn't party because it was like, just having a few beers doesn't feel good if you're just dehydrated in the morning and yeah. off your game. But, um, you know, we, we did shift. So there's, there's supposed to be someone on watch at all times. Um, we, we decided, which I think was a, not a great idea, but we would, um, we had three hour shifts. So like, I think it started at like nine at night in every night we rotated what your shift was. So we actually were never sleeping at the same time, which I think is a really bad, <laughs> bad idea for like sustaining how you live in your body. Sure. But we were some, sometimes you'd sleep from nine to midnight and then wake up and, you know, watch, but it turned into just people would sleep at the desk. And so everyone was super fatigued all day long. And we would, mm. I would get up and I was the cook on the boat. So I would, um, that, that was how I kind of passed my time is I was just always thinking about like what the next meal would be and how we would use the stuff that we just cooked and what was going bad. Um, so I would do that. And then you would lay around and read and take a nap. And, uh, you know, we kind of had a little area on the front of the boat for just hanging out and chilling by yourself. Um, 
but yeah, it was mostly like the whole day is just based around meals. It's just, it was when you're in the middle of the ocean, there's not much to do. There was a lot of reading, listening to music and just shooting the shit. So the, the meals that you mentioned, where, where does, where did the food come from? Like at your different stops or ports or whatever, you guys would just pick up stuff and load up or were you, uh, I I know in a couple scenes in the documentary, you were catching fish, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you guys were eating those, the ones that you could. Yeah, we, we were pretty shitty fishermen, actually. We, <laughs> we, we didn't, sailboats go too fast to really sail or to really fish uh, for the most part. And you need like the right equipment and we had none of the right equipment. So mm-hmm. we were constantly tying like trash to, we were trying to make like a really flashy lure and it would, you know, once every like four days, we'd get a bite from like the biggest fish you've ever seen in your life and it'd <laughs> jump out of the water and snap the line. <laughs> but otherwise it was just, you were dragging the trash behind the boat. But we, we provisioned in, um, in Panama for like three months. Okay. So it was just kind of doing the math of like, how much can a guy eat and how much, like, what do you want to eat and what is available that's canned and, you know, fresh produce is mm. nothing stores after, you know, six or seven days. So, you know, that you're going to have the second, you know, the last 14 days are going to be canned food. So, um, you, you, once you kind of like get down to the math of like, how much spaghetti do I need for, five meals for three guys, you kind of, you can kind of like back, you know, you can figure out what you, what you need. So we were just eating canned food and, and when we caught fish, we, we did it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So three months of provisioning for, for what, which passage was that? Um, that was in Panama. So maybe I overstated that, that we probably, well, we, we knew we were going to be in the Galapagos, but we didn't know what their grocery stores would be like, or if it would be cheap. So, um, like in Panama, we were, I was buying cheese from Wisconsin. Um, if we're like, we had a really small refrigerator, but, um, we were, you know, we, we stacked that with like dairy products and I don't even think we put any meat in it, but, um, then we thought maybe the next time we'd provision was like in Tahiti, but yeah. So I guess three months we were trying to plan for, I think was, it was the idea. Wow. That you leave Panama and then you got eight days to the Galapagos Islands and then you jump from the, I guess, to the Marquesas and that's like 20 to 25 days, depending on how fast your boat is and that. That particular jump, that's the longest. Unless you're trying to go a non-circuitous way, that's the longest one. Galapagos to Marquesas Islands, French Polynesia, that's the longest passage in a standard circumnavigation. It's really, really yeah. far. Wow. Yeah, 3,000 miles or something. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. That's a lot. <laughs> Who was doing most of, like, the charting and, like, the navigation? Was that Alex or? Yeah, it was, it was mostly Alex. Like, when you're leaving... Um, this is kind of a funny story because we were getting ready to leave the Galapagos and the Galapagos are right on the equator. And so you have two options. You can either sail straight South. And if you sail, cause the further South you go, the more wind you get. So like when you get the, the further South on, you know, anyways, the, the wind starts to pick up. So that if you're sailing way South, you can sail around the world quickly, but you have better weather to the North along the equator and more current. So there's kind of like a strategy where some fast boats will just say, we don't care about the current. We're going to go straight south and catch the wind, and then we'll we'll race, you know, west because you're 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 kind of going southwest. Um, and other people will say we want to take advantage of the current and stay stay north near the equator, and then turn south and try to catch wind and get to get you. Um, Alex had like his little handheld GPS, and he was like, he just set the coordinates for the Galapagos, the first island, and we went straight at it. <laughs> and we um we had like the fastest sail you could have. We had perfect wind. We didn't change our sails for like 17 days. Wow. So that was like we had wind on the beam at like 15 knots for 17 days. Oh Sometimes God. a little stronger, but rarely less than that. 
So, so the winds were so consistent to where you could just hold beam for 15 days straight and just yeah. watch the sails? We had, I mean, we had to adjust our sails so we didn't get too much like fraying um, on one spot on the ropes, but that, you know, that literally could take like five minutes a day wow. if we had to change them that often. But mm-hmm. we, um, they call it the coconut milk run from huh. sailing at that time of year because you have the constant wind um, that's going to push you along. So it's like the easiest time in the world, like from February through, I don't know, October, is it February through May or something like that? Is the yeah, coconut about, milk about, yeah, when the trade winds. In that those that particular mm-hmm. trade wind is is hot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we got lucky. Well. Yeah, we didn't. The, the, the charting was pretty crude, and it was all through a handheld like Garmin sort of thing. I mean, we should have been sponsored by Garmin. Yeah, it really. Was just, that's all he used to sail around the world was a little handheld. Yeah. No I, charting. I, no nothing. A little like orange. Yeah, a little like orange <laughs> thing. It just like points and vectors only like i don't think it had a lot of it might have had like country data in it or something like a world crude world map or something yeah. stored in it but not much yeah I, I, I did see that there was a there was a sextant and like a user's guide for a sextant on the uh, he was just fucking around i think he just wanted to learn yeah, yeah how to how to celestial navigate i don't i don't know that that boat ever depended on the stars or the <laughs> solar noon or anything any of that business right right did he end up ever getting any sort of like certifications or through any programs or was it really just of what he learned while he was out there yeah he between the that first caribbean sail that that ross and vanessa and alex and alex's brother solomon did uh he he signed up for a like a dinghy sailing class um it might have been sometime on that trip somewhere in the caribbean just to kind of get some uh, you know, uh, basic boat principles, some hydrodynamics, some sailing principles, points of sail, how to trim sails, you know, how sailboats perform in the water, monohull sailboats. No way. I did not know hmm. that. Actually. Yeah. I have photos of them no taking one of the classes. I, I, at one point I tried to string together a little sequence where he takes a class, but it was boring and we didn't have very good coverage of it. And, he, and the movie's not as good if he stops to take a sailing class at some point. And he was two hours late. so i i know uh i know big shoots over here is a germaphobe so i'm trying to grasp in my mind how somebody like that could have survived on bubbles oh yeah that (laughs) one we had our our rules of hygiene were pretty i mean we yeah it would it would have been pretty rough okay that was Um, my immediate thought the entire like first time i watched the documentary i'm like oh it's so gross i could just smell it and imagine okay so at one time what was the most people you had on like out on a sail not you know a bunch of kids jumping on the boat but like out for a a decent amount of time yeah Yeah. what was the most Um, amount of people you had I mean, when I was on the boat, we just we did one from island to island in the Galapagos, which is like a, a night sail, but like a full, you, you know, you like left in the morning, you sailed overnight and you were there the next day. Um, we must have had like seven or eight people on the boat. Um, so it's pretty, I mean, it's, and it's not that like three people was, I wouldn't say it was tight, but um, eight people was, is way too many. But when, when people are just partying on the boat, we would have a ton of people. Yeah. But um, yeah, for a real sail, I, and he may have had more than that a few times, but that's, no one could be there's not enough beds for that there's enough beds for like five people sure so yeah gotcha so people are just like sleeping on the deck and everything oh yeah i'm sure <laughs> yeah sleeping passing out you know yeah. potato potato and, and 39 feet that really isn't that large of a boat when I mean, you're talking about these 20 25 day passages right 
Yeah, I mean, it was enough. It was enough boat for. Um, it, it wasn't a very much an ocean going vessel. Like it was made for blue water sailing. Um, so as far as like, and it was actually it wasn't very wide. So it was it was a solid built boat. It's kind of like a there's a boat there's a book written about um, that that hull because I think they like on the first single handed sail around the world the guy who a guy sailed that boat and he um. I think he took second place or something like that. Like that. the Vende Globe? Um, Topher no, 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 no. Uh, it was a, it was a just a single hander uh, in the seventies or eighties who, um, who had a, a that boat was called the Fast Passage Thirty Nine, made by a now defunct company called Tollycraft, and um, there was a guy who had a Fast Passage Thirty Nine. It was called I think it was called Moonlight. Yeah, uh, yes. and uh, he. He circumnavigated solo on the on the boat, uh, the same type of boat as Bubbles, and wrote a book about it called The Moonlight Diaries that's uh, sort of revered within the sailing community. Um, uh, it, Ross is absolutely right. I mean, that's a that that's a boat built to sail across oceans. It's it sounds small, but it's uh, it's uh, designed to as as far as heavy old school monohull boats go. It, it's designed to make those crossings quickly. Yeah. Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, like the emotional, I guess, roller coaster that you guys had to experience. And you know, Ross, you were experiencing it firsthand. Topher, you basically experienced it through a lens and got to see all the all, all the video of, of everything and what people were going through. Um, you know, how, how how did you maintain you know some level of um, I don't know, like emotional balance? Because I'm sure it was you know it was like I say an emotional roller coaster. Um, the, I guess like being out sailing there, like, I think, especially like it's mostly about the time that you're kind of alone with the people on the boat is I think when like the emotional stress comes in because it's, it's three people that you can't get more than like, you know, 10 feet away from for, for the most part, you are living on top of these people. And they, people talk about like, like marriages that have been very happy and successful for 40 years will like end after crossing the Pacific because it's just... Yeah. you you you're any little tick gets at people but um it i think it very much a testament to just like how i mean alex was a really easy guy to get along with fun loving like you knew that his intention was always good and um of course there were times where we kind of butted heads about things but um for the most part like the the stress of thinking we were going to die in any moment <laughs> was a little like uh, the boat alarm would go off and i would think that the boat was sinking in the middle of the night um, so there was always that like light stress, but otherwise like emotional, I mean, you're, you're in beautiful places. We're having a good time. You're with the good friends. Um, it, it was an adventure that you're always seeing kind of, you know, new things. So, um, yeah, emotionally it was, um, of course it's also a long time, but you knew there, I think when, whenever you have like a, a plan and you know, what's going to happen and about when they're going to happen, um, it makes it easier to deal with things like like a long trip like that. You just kind of know where you're going to be and when decisions have to be made. So um, from an emotional standpoint, I was never like super freaked out or um, like losing it. But um, yeah. there were trying times. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Topher, I'm sure you got to see, um, you know, additional footage of the times when uh, Ross wasn't necessarily wasn't on bubbles. What, what, what did you see? Oh, uh, well, I, I saw a bunch of traveling people, uh, you know, trying to, 
sail around the world as best they could and enjoy it as best they could and, you know, discover that experience. I mean, it's, uh, it's not a new experience, but it's quite an experience as, you know, uh, it's, it's very physically demanding. Uh, it's mentally demanding, like Ross mentioned. It's, um, and, but yeah, you also get to see these beautiful, incredible things. And from a perspective that most people don't, you know, uh, you, you can, if you're on a private sailboat, you can go to places where most people don't normally get to see things, islands that people don't go to, you know, perspectives of coastlines people don't normally see. So I, I got a little peek into people having that experience for the first time, mostly in their late 20s or early 30s when they had the energy and the freedom to do it. And also at the same time, when you're watching a bunch of home videos made by a bunch of people in their late 20s and early 30s, there's, you know, people people cut loose from time to time. So it's a lot of a lot of laughter. It's a little bubbles, um, and, bubbles after dark. Yeah. 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 And, and also, you know, uh, some creatures of folly as well as a sailor myself I watching um folks take a shot at trying to figure out how they would do something get through a channel or rig a boat for a certain day um you know it's it, there's a lot of laughter involved it and alex had a great sense of humor about it if something was going wrong he'd point the camera at it you know and get coverage of it and Later, when we were trying to tell the story and I'd interview him, I'd say, hey, tell me some time something went wrong. He would just start talking. You know, he w- he wasn't going to withhold anything. He'd tell you in great detail every crazy thing that happened. So th- that was my perspective, I guess. Also, at the same time, I was kind of trying to get to know who this guy was. I kind of wanted to learn uh, what made him tick and what makes a person decide to go on an adventure like that. It seemed then at that time that it was sort of post great recession, if you will, that it was sort of in vogue to run away from your profession in your, as if you were a young person and go on an adventure, whether you're going to hike the PCT or go to Thailand or backpack across Europe or whatever it, it may be. It, it seems sort of a trend that people were doing that. And I wanted to get to the bottom of what makes a person decide to do that and what soul in their mind during and afterwards. So that was my perspective on the whole thing. Yeah, well, with that, um, I was going to hold this till a little bit later. But so, what do you think is what do you think Alex's true motivation for taking this journey was? Uh, Ross, you want to take a shot first, or is that for me? Oh, you go for it. Oh uh, well, um, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, Alex really wanted to, you know, experience the fullest life that he could. Uh, his. Uh, his, his dad was sort of larger than life um, that sort of built this uh, big company and he had a big family and he loved to travel and sort of do outrageous things and, and passed away of, of old age when Alex was just a college student. Mm. Um, so uh, I think Alex wanted to do a lot of things to fulfill the hopes that his father might have had for him. Uh travel uh, initially i think it was to be financially successful and alex had done that he had uh you know he, he'd become a pretty successful options trader i think by pretty successful i mean he scraped together a few hundred thousand dollars in his late 20s he wasn't you know like a millionaire or anything um and then after he kind of figured out how to crack that egg he he uh he wanted to do the next thing uh see the world and he was a very frugal guy he he would fly to Europe to go to the running of the bulls uh, and then fly back, you know, the next day. Uh, 
and he, he'd get on the cheapest flight. Uh, and he, even that he hated, he hated spending money on, you know, flights or hotels. He, he just wanted to travel as cheaply and as he could in order to interface with the world as directly as he could. And I think he saw sailing as a way to do that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Sounds like producer Jake traveling the world on uh, on a dime <laughs> and on value that's what it's all about value that internet has made it a whole lot easier these days yeah no doubt so I, i'm curious what what were some of the hazards or uh maybe close calls that you know that, that were encountered along the way that maybe weren't shown in the documentary um is there is there was there any uh were, were you ever fear fear was anybody ever fearful for their life at any point yeah, I mean, that was a question I asked all the time. I think we did our best to show them. I don't know if Alex withheld some stuff, but uh, I think maybe one that didn't make the documentary as well is uh, when they were crossing the Indian Ocean, so sailing from basically Indonesia to, I think they went to Rodriguez Island, right in the little teeny island right in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and then on to Madagascar. Um, it's this really long, gnarly crossing, and the Indian Ocean has really strong winds and high waves, and really shortly uh well i guess going back he had kind of a limited crew he um he, he crewed up with some folks he wasn't as close to one one guy it turned out to be great this chinese guy named kirk and um another person who uh maybe didn't have the right amount of experience and so it's just the three of them on bubbles leaving indonesia for i think it was rodriguez island one of the islands right in the middle of the indian ocean and um like a day or two out uh a wave smacked the back of the boat, a big, you know, 20 foot wave smacked the back of the boat and knocked the rudder hmm. sideways pretty hard. And it, it knocked it so hard that, uh, it jammed the hydraulic arm that, uh, that is inside the, the rudder assembly that is linked to the electronic autopilot. Um, so they lost steerage and Alex crawled below on bubbles. Um, to try to fix it and saw that the arm was bent and there was no way they'd be able to fix it, uh, which meant that they had to hand steer for the next 15 days, oh um, wow. which is a massive undertaking. I mean, that's, uh, you know, imagine, you know, driving cross country, but you can never stop to take a leak or eat or sleep. You just got to have your hands on the wheel the whole time um, uh, to keep when the boat straight. With boat no point of reference waves. either, just it's open ocean on all, all 30, 360 mm -hmm. degrees. Right. All you can do is try to stay on the right point of sale and uh, and check the GPS occasionally. You've got a compass, but staring at a compass and then back up at the horizon will make you crazy. Oh. It's like a, an instrument pilot trying to fly in a cloud, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I think that was pretty gnarly. They were exhausted. The three of them were sailing in eight hour <laughs> shifts, just hands on the wheel the whole time. No time to relax. You're just white knuckling it for for days and days and days and through pretty gnarly conditions. I think it rained a lot and wow. huge waves the whole time. And three people that weren't super close, maybe hadn't bonded super well. And I, I know that was really hard on him mentally and physically. And I, I, I know there were, he wasn't sure if he to make it out of it. That, and of course, I don't know if you, if you watch the film all the way in the credits, uh, there's a couple of experience run-ins he had with pirates that uh, didn't make the, uh, the main cut, but oh, really? I know he was scared. Yeah, in the credits, wow. I've got him. He, he was in the Caribbean and uh, off the coast of Venezuela, which is a no-sail zone. He was trying to make it to Turks and Caicos. You're not supposed to sail through there because of all the, the piracy, the drug runners, and the oil smugglers wow. in the area. And uh, Yeah, some guys pulled up beside his little boat, and uh, I think he pulled out a flare gun, and he danced around naked. 
<laughs> Aired him off. So they thought he was crazy. <laughs> yeah. He sent, his, he sent his girlfriend below deck and he was, they were sailing in the nude, I think. And he just, he said, I, I guess I'll just stand on the deck with a flare gun. And if they point a gun at me, I'll shoot at them. <laughs> I think they just thought he was crazy because they had painted the boat all weird and shit. Um, and they had all their clothes oh. hanging off. And I just don't think it was worthwhile. For oh my God. So funny. Boat. And he was a hairy guy, kind of a stocky Polish dude. So, and and medium husky, medium husky, exactly. There you go. Not what the pirates expected to come up on. (laughs) Ross, I think you mentioned. I mean, was there a close call going through the Panama Canal? Um, actually, there there was kind of a close. The the one other note on uh, Topher's story was the um, they lost their water too, so they had no fresh water. Mm. Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. And I don't think their stove worked either. They were eating like raw canned food the whole time. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess not raw, but just uncooked yeah. canned food yeah. um, on top of hand steering and all that. But um, yeah, when we were in the Panama Canal. This was like our first day, like really sailing to cross the Pacific because we were going to the Panama to um, the Galapagos. And I had the first watch in year. So anyways, they're just like, okay, like just sail along this route. And it's a shipping lane. So like, it is tricky to sail around there. There's big shipping containers going, you know, or mm. shipping boats or barges, um, driving around And anyways, you know, whatever they're going past you. And there was one that was kind of coming at us and, you know, you just turn a little bit cause you, you can see them from a long ways away, but there were a lot of lights and antennas and I kept correcting to the direction I thought I should in the way that you tell if they're still coming at you is you kind of keep your eye on a fixed point on your boat. And if as you're going, you're, you're keeping that same line with their boat, you know you're going to eventually hit. Um, anyways, that kept happening no matter what, no matter how I would adjust our, our direction. So I kept going down below and I would, Alex was leaving. I was like, what do you want me to do? He's like, just turn five degrees that direction. I'd do that. And it would. And then a few minutes later, I'd be like, we're still going to, we're still on course to hit these guys. Huh. And um, finally, I was like, dude, we're going to hit, like, I could almost see the boat. And I was like, we're going to hit him. He's, I'm like, what should I do? And he came up and he was like, turn off the autopilot and it was just as the light like the boat was like less than 50 feet away from us and he's he swerved the boat and just as he was swerving the giant wake hit us that they were creating i mean we were within like 30 feet it was probably his closest call of like hitting a giant ship and it was like six hours after we had left the panama canal um (laughs) and i mean it would have taken our boat would have sunk if we hit that it was a giant boat going at 20 knots or whatever 15 knots, whatever they cruise at. But um, yeah, strangely enough, that was like one of the craziest things that happened um, as far as like sinking the boat and hitting another big ship. Yeah. Crazy. So I think Ross in the documentary, you mentioned that, you know, maybe 80 people at some point came and went from bubbles along the way, you know, picking up people at various stops. Um, I'm, and actually this is a question that comes from my daughter. Who's a huge fan. Um, that's nice. It's a family affair. It's family affair. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you keep in touch with many of those people? Um, actually there is, um, I've been messaging with Diego quite a bit. I Mm. I keep in touch with Diego. Mm -hmm. I was on the boat with him for a long time. He's like almost a little brother to me in some ways, but he was just trying to raise money because he had his boat in, um, Salinas, I think, and he needed to get it back to the Galapagos because he's a guide there with his um, with his girlfriend. So they were they'd kind of run short on funds because of that. And we set up a little GoFundMe for him. But um, I keep in touch with him. I keep in touch with um, there's a few other people. Paul Turk made one um, made (laughs) was in the movie for just a a moment. 
Um, he's a Canadian hockey player. And then a guy named Reed Whiting was on this ship in Australia or um, in Africa, I think, in Papua New Guinea. Um, and then I don't think there's many other people that I, oh, there's um, some of the people from the around the world trip. I, I do see um, Trevor, I, Trevor Froehager. I've, I've seen him a few times. He lives in Indiana, I think, or West Virginia. Um, I think that's mostly the extent of the folks that I see. Am I missing someone, Tover, that we see or stay in touch with? Oh, we. I mean, Molly. We, 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 we hang out with the Rust brothers from time to time. Solomon, oh. Joe, uh, Big Dave Rust. Uh, we're still close with Alex's mother, um, mm -hmm. Alex's sisters. Uh, occasionally head down to Seymour, Indiana, where Alex is from, for a, a Rust gathering of one kind or another. And uh, Oh, yeah. I've got Those a... Are good people down there they've got a great people they've got a uh a, a uh not-for-profit organization set up uh, in alex's name that's actually now called the chasing bubbles foundation nice. um it's trying to yeah the, so the, the goal of that is to raise money to try to uh, their mission statement i got it written here uh they're trying to empower people to chase their dream and challenge the status quo hmm. uh which is kind of cool then they, awesome. they yeah they want to use micro loan programming to help people do that so yeah that we, we we i work on that board and um oh there's so many people from the bubbles crew that we're yeah still in touch with i know i'm missing someone too oh uh, christine gordon i just went yeah. i sailed across uh i just went and sailed across the caribbean with christine gordon a year ago she uh, uh one of the crew of bubbles uh, ended up buying a boat of her own uh she's got it down in the caribbean she and i sailed from cartagena colombia up to the yucatan peninsula in mexico uh wow. in may 2019 it was great that's awesome yeah christine's great so cool so um of those you know plus or minus 80 people that last maybe, maybe that's what you're referencing when you say sail around the world but like that last i guess run or whatever um when everybody met and spent a night i guess or whatever just celebrating everything that happened over the course of a number of years. How many people were there for that? I think, I think there were something like 30 people that, yes, um, that ended up making that trip. Cause yeah. it was, um, yeah. we filled up three boats very, oh, wow. like, we completely filled up three boats. I might, um, I might be exaggerating a bit, but that was, that was like a, almost a, that was like a 10 day event. So we, <laughs> rented boats i think in the bvis and sailed them to saint martin and then came back i can't remember if we rented them there and then sailed but um yeah we had a big catamaran that was like 50 feet long okay um a monohull that was about the same size that we rented and then we had bubbles too and That's all of awesome. those boats were completely full with people so um, what yeah. what was that final night like well, it was it was actually like a series of final nights because people okay. were leaving at different times. Yeah. So it just kind of like everyone came in and then you were around like an airport so you could get to where you needed to. But it was it was literally just a series of parties. And then as people I think it's like in the documentary a little bit as people were leaving, there mm -hmm. would be like a ceremony for them. Yep. Um, yeah, it was. Well, of course, it, it was um, melancholy probably for um for you know or, or bittersweet for alex because it was like the ending of something that was so big but it was all of his best friends were around right. him and having a great time people were having a blast but it's like an unwritten rule of sailing around the world is you never ask what people are going to do next hmm. it's just like don't ever ask that you learn that pretty early on because people don't want to think about it hmm. and so that's like you knew that he was i mean at least i, I think everyone obviously knew but um yeah it was uh it was such a blast i think everyone had a 
uh, an awesome time. Um, but it, he, I think he, he knew that, well, he knew there was a change coming. And I think that's just a tricky thing to, to, to end something like that. Sure. Um, yeah. So did every party after that fail in comparison? That was, that was some pretty wild times. <laughs> we had some pretty wild times, but um, yeah. yeah, we still have some good parties, and I have a short memory, so. Yeah, and um. the, the, the scene in the movie, or in the, in the documentary that gets me choked up every single time, and I'm sure it does a number of people, is when Alex is, you know, like, saying goodbye to Bubbles for the last time, and he, like, you know, kisses in his hand and gives a kiss to Bubbles, and I'm just like, oh, my God, it just, like, tears my heartstrings every time. I guess I've yeah. turned into a wuss as I've gotten older, I don't know. <laughs> I think he actually almost fell in the water there too because that boat really? was getting pretty far. He was getting he, he kind of gave it a final tap yeah. with the camera rolling. I think it was pretty far away. <laughs> his <laughs> uh, his brother Joe shot that. His brother oh, Joe right. was the last. Yeah, the voiceover in that section is his brother Joe talking, saying, "Someone left, and then someone left, and then yeah. it was just down to me and Alex." And yep. then yep. Alex kisses the boat. And what's not in the documentary is that right after that they had to get on. Uh, they had sold the boat to the. Yep to the, the yacht broker in the boatyard there because uh, Alex is out of money and uh, uh, that was it. I mean, the boat was nearly totaled. Uh, so they just sold it to the, the yacht broker there and they were leaving and they were catching a ferry from that island over to the next island where you could get a flight. I forget exactly. They were at, on Tortola somewhere, mm-hmm. Nanny, Nanny K, I believe. So they were mm-hmm. going from Nanny K back to the main Tortola Island. Yeah. And on the ferry, the ferry boat went past the harbor where uh, – Bubbles was moored there, and uh, Joe Russ told me that Alex had tried to climb over the edge of the ferry and swim back to Bubbles. He wow. he was he was really upset, and you know after living that life for three years, it was pretty hard to tear himself away from it. I mean, he was he was going to jump off the ferry and swim back there, and you know, yeah. not leave his home. Uh, but uh, his brother restrained him, and he returned to the United States to be thrown in prison for. Some sort of passport violation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had read that. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, I mean, anybody that was involved with um, the project, I mean, you know, Ross, you spending six months on Bubbles and, and Topher, your constant involvement throughout the uh, the adventure. I mean, how, 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 and Alex, for example, I mean, how, I, I think the documentary depicted it pretty well, but how difficult it was to, you know, re-inject yourself into reality after uh you know after just that unbelievable adventure yeah no i know he had a he had <clears throat> yeah you as you can imagine it, it's like two of the most completely opposite worlds trying to step back into um he, he was having a rough time when he was back in chicago just trying to readjust and there was a little bit of i think almost celebrity that came along with him coming back because mm-hmm. everyone remembered him as this like wild man that was just always up for a good time and living in his minivan and just this crazy story that he had lived through. But I don't think he had any, he didn't like that. I think, um, like light amount of fame, um, that came along with it. And just, I don't think he was interested in the, the life that Chicago had to offer. Mm -hmm. It wasn't kind of the same, what he, what he had lived for so many years and what he enjoyed, enjoyed for so many years. So it was, um, yeah, it was kind of tricky to, see him trying to navigate that and, and reinsert himself to the only other thing that he thought he knew. Um, well, how about, yeah. how about you, Ross? Was it hard for you? Um, I was, I wasn't gone for long enough. I was gone for three or four. Like I, I had a stretch where I was gone for like three and a half months. Um, 
when I came back, I did feel a little socially awkward. There, there, that's enough time where I think that you're not around enough people. Um, like public speaking was tough for me for some reason after that. Like, I, I think I was fine with it before, after it was a little tricky. Like I had some anxiety um, that I noticed. And um, so, but no, for the most part, it was like, I was also coming back after three months to like great friends in Chicago. I had to fly back for a bachelor party with like my best friend from high school. Like I kind of was able to reinsert myself pretty quickly. So it wasn't terribly difficult. Of course, there was the aspect of just like, should I be stressing out about the things I'm still stressing with when I sure. just love that life? And then of course I wanted to be back on the boat. You're, you're, you're sitting in a cubicle right. and you know that you're seeing the guy who replaced you partying in Fiji and like seeing the most beautiful things that you left the boat to sit in your office for. So um, there was, there was that part of it, but I, I had a great taste of it at that time. And I was ready to just kind of put it away for a while and get back to normal life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think uh, Ross, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you start the blog that was, uh, that was done throughout the trip? Yeah. I, um, I don't remember really why I started doing it, but I had, um, I think it seemed like a thing to do at that time to have a, have a blog about this yeah. and just have something to take my, to spend my time on. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I started it, um, before I left and I wasn't sure if, um, if anyone was going to be interested in doing it, but then people took our, our buddy, Jim Ramirez, who we forgot to mention Jim, Jim is one of the oh, people that we see. Jim Ramirez, <laughs> one, one of our that. dearest friends and one of just the all time party boys, uh, party. responsible for the, the original, uh, uh, SV bubbles, pregnancy and SV bubbles, love child, um, conceived in the V birth. We really wanted them to name the child with a V name, but they refused. Um, he is a awesome. yeah. beautiful little girl. Yes. Awesome. Um, <laughs> he, uh, yes, Jim is one of our great friends. Um, but he worked at the same company I worked at was reading the blog and then I was getting ready to leave and they needed another person. And he was like, I'm going to do it. So then he did it for two months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of Super cool. Yeah. yeah, over the over the course of the last few months, I've kind of you know read through it, and just bear with me because I'm going to read Alex's last blog entry. I think ooh, it was I think it was dated like September seventeenth, two thousand twelve. Oh, um, I know it well. Oh yeah, okay. So I'm going to read this. We, I think I, we've we've got it printed on a T-shirt. I think. Please I, go ahead. Do you really? Oh my gosh, yeah. I, want, I want that T-shirt. Uh, this trip was about simple discovery, venturing out to see the world and the people in it. Along the way, we faced obstacles and challenges that only a trip like this could produce. And with no alternative but success, we overcame. What we found was that the world is indeed a beautiful place filled with beautiful people. And like nearly everything in life, it is the people that make the experience and Bubbles was blessed with the best characters in the world the world has to offer. It was a dream come true for me. And if I learned anything on this trip, it was that with a little luck and a lot of determination, or maybe it's the other way around, you can make anything happen. Just go for it. I read that. And again, I got emotional. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so deep, you know, when you, when you see the documentary and then you go back and you read through the blog and you read that last entry, it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. It just brings it full circle. It's crazy. Yeah. He was, uh, no, I think that's what it's well put. And Alex, uh, he was an emotional guy. It was, um, yeah, I think he captured it well with that last blog. And there was one of the guys, I can't remember the guy's name, but he, uh, he, he referenced Alex and he said that he's the smartest idiot I ever met in my life. 
<laughs> Matt Claycamp. Is that who it was? Mechanic. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, the mechanic. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's it's right. Alex's buddy uh, from Seymour, Indiana. He grew up, played high school football with him, and uh, Matt became a, a diesel specialist. He fixes up cool old Ford diesel engines, and uh, so when Alex blew out his marine diesel engine in Thailand, rather than pay a local marine engine expert, Alex just bought his buddy a flight to Thailand and uh, told him to bring his wrenches. So awesome. Clay Camp's a good guy. Oh, yeah. Clay so Camp's great. a great, Clay Camp's a great guy. And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, if somebody ever said that about me, I would take that as a compliment, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. great. I love it. I love it. So before we get out here, how did, how did this experience change you guys? And Ross, I'll start with you. Um, I... I, I guess the, um, you know, one of the big lessons I take away from the trip, it, it is just the kind of one foot in front of the other sort of, you want to do something, um, you can, like, it is a series of small steps. And um, I think you can accomplish bigger goals than it is um, as silly as it sounds. And maybe it's cliche. It's just, yeah, one foot in front of the other um, type of thought to keep in mind. And also, um Shoot, I had one other thing and I'm spacing on it now. But yeah, the, the main the main lesson was just like you can you can do anything you put your mind to, as simple as that sounds. And I think I, I guess the other thing I was thinking about is that like there are of course I you know, we I still live in Chicago and I still kind of live the life that maybe Alex was trying to get away from, but there are it's like what truly makes you happy and what is truly required to be happy yep. is something that you're you're thinking about all the time when you're out there. Um, because you're you're bumping into villagers who are the happiest people you've ever met and are loving life and they don't they don't have a car to drive and they're not sure mm -hmm. when their next meal is necessarily gonna well they know when their next meal because it's probably gonna be a fish but um, it's like how how simple in like life can be like what's what's really required required to make you truly happy um, I guess I would think those say those are the best lessons or the lessons that I took from that trip yep yep that's awesome how about you Topher? Oh, making that documentary transformed the way I was living my own life. I, as I was going through all that footage and considering the choices that Alex made and, and the the time that he had to make those choices, I started to reconsider my own uh, path and my own choices. And uh, I uh, bought a small sailboat with Ross and. Uh, we anchored it in downtown Chicago and I lived on it for three years while we edited the movie. And, uh, after we finished up the movie, I quit my job and I moved out to Portland, Oregon. And then I quit that job and moved to New York, um, wow. worked there for a while. I've just kind of been, uh, unmoored ever since then. Um, you know, I, I kind of had this realization that, you know, there's no guarantee that we all get 85 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if you got something you want to do, you should try to do it as soon as you're able. Um, and, and there should be nothing stopping you from doing that. You know? Yeah, I actually, Topher, really, you, you reminded me of one of the things, one of the lessons I learned and it was, um, it's kind of related. I think we had a conversation about this and it was, um, it was kind of the things that I think you're most scared. If you're trying to make a hard decision and you're scared of one, it's kind of like pretty good reason to try to do it. And I think, before Topher was getting ready to move to Portland, we were talking about that. And I was like, I kind of asked him if he was scared of it. And I was like, well, that's a damn good reason to go for it. I mean, if something yeah. you're scared of, that's like pretty good reason. Um, that might be 
kind of like a more early or late 20s sort of thought that makes sense. And maybe in my later years, I won't agree with it as much. But um, right now, it seems like those sorts of um, when you're making a tough decision like that, if it's something you're really scared of, that obviously not like physically scared of, it might not be a bad thing to go after. Yeah, no, that's that's really good stuff. And Topher, I, I mean, I have no idea what the intent was when you when you guys made this documentary. But um, I mean, honestly, it it moved me to think about things a different way. No doubt about it. Um, you know, it made me think about minimalism a little bit, and you know the benefits and you know how realistic that lifestyle can be. But, um, you know, just, hey, kudos, kudos to you guys for, for your role. Kudos to everybody that played a part in, uh, in, the, in the documentary and, and just that experience. It was un- unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate that. And it sounds like, yeah. you, sounds like you, um, that one of the messages that I hoped would resonate has resonated. I'm okay. so glad to hear that. It makes me feel great. That's great. That's great. Well, that, that's awesome. And, um, yeah. But Topher, why don't you go ahead and tell people, like, where, where, where can they find Chasing Bubbles and additional information? Oh, Chasing Bubbles is, uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's, uh, it's free. Um, we got a website, ChasingBubblesMovie.com. Um, that website links to the Chasing Bubbles Memorial Foundation. Um, if you're in a far off land, if you're not here in the United States and your YouTube is blocked for you for some reason, Chasing Bubbles is also on Vimeo. Hmm. Um and uh, I don't want to say too much, but uh, some folks uh, in, a, in a little place called Hollywood are trying to turn um, Chasing Bubbles into a, a feature series. Uh, they're trying to create a limited series where they cast actors and write scripts and retell the story with the magic of cinema. So maybe you can find Chasing Bubbles at a Netflix near you sometime soon, but that's years away. But for now, go to YouTube, watch it. It's, I think it's probably worth your time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's like the best yeah. hour and 20 minutes I've spent all year. That's for sure. Mine too. Are you guys keeping up like the Facebook page and stuff like that? Uh, not as good as we should. Occasionally when I sure. get a photo or a video or something, or mm-hmm. uh, if we do a podcast like yours, I'll, I'll go up and throw it on the Facebook page so that our fans can see it. That's the best way we can interface that's the only way we really interface with the fans of the film. Um, I occasionally go read the YouTube comments, but it's got like, you know, a million and a half views. Just a yeah. lot of the comments are kind of chaos. Yeah. Um, but occasionally I go and read something. If anyone's written something interesting, I'll respond or stir the pot. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, no, but if, if, if reach out to us on Facebook, if you'd like to get a hold of us, that's the best way. Perfect. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I yep. think uh, just to add, I think we'd be remiss that some of the folks that helped tell the story, um, Chris James Thompson and Andrew Swant were the editors of uh, Chasing Bubbles and just phenomenal filmmakers that, you know, award-winning guys and just great, great guys that they, they put a lot of time and effort into making this film and what it was. I mean, it was a good story, but it was, um, you know, they, they helped with Topher uh, turn it into what it, you know, what it, what it was. Yeah, absolutely. We're deeply in debt to, yeah, Chris Thompson, a great editor and Andrew Swan, another great film editor. There was, like you mentioned earlier, Kent, there was hours and hours and hours and hours of footage to go through to assemble this thing. And we had storyboards <laughs> up on poster boards trying to put the different set movie together. And also then we're in debt to Luke Morrison, our colorist. And, uh, uh, we got a, team of musicians at human music in LA and uh, who did this beautiful score hmm. musical score and the uh, drew our sound mixer in Chicago. I mean that, that 
the, the, so many hands went into making this movie that it was that yeah, Laura Adrianopoli. Oh. Hopefully, we forgot. <laughs> and let us not forget the great Laurie Adrianopoli, our producer, who's yes, just a fountain of energy. Awesome, absolutely wonderful woman. Awesome, awesome. Well, I got to be honest with you guys. I've been nervous all day about talking to you, and uh, you made it very easy. So I appreciate that. Oh, it's what an honor it is to get to talk to you guys. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, Ryan, uh, Jake, you guys got anything else you want to add? I'm good. Loved it. I would just want to amplify that everything that I think that you were trying to resonate definitely resonated, at least for us. And that was, like you said, the best hour and 20 minutes I think I've spent this year. So really liked it and um, definitely trying to share it with everyone I know. Awesome. Yeah, solid work. These guys sold me on it, said, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. I made the mistake of starting it at like 1130 at night and (laughs) I had to watch it the whole way through. I was exhausted the whole next day, but it was well worth it. So, yes, well done, guys. Well, the beauty of it is every time I watch it, I glean something else from it. It's Mm -hmm. another emotion like comes into play or something. It it just it just really, really uh, resonated with me for sure. Absolutely. That's great. All right. Well, again, thank you guys so much. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Check us out at thegeoholics.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn by searching for The Geoholics. And listen to all our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, and Spotify. Download the Geoholics app from LSU. And last but not least, please subscribe to the new Geoholics YouTube channel. Email us at info at thegeoholics.com. If you're interested in being a friend of the program or a guest on a future show, Talking Heads, Road to Nowhere, available everywhere. Please support our friends of the program every chance you get. Pay it forward. Add value, make friends. And until next time, everybody, be safe and healthy. So that's it then? All right. Once again, thank you to our friends of the program, Bad Elf GPS. Find them at bad-elf.com. Land Surveyors United, landsurveyorsunited.com. LIDAR News at lidarnews.com. Parkland College Land Survey Program, parkland.edu slash surveying. Unifly, U-N-I-F-L-I dot A-E-R-O. Diamondback Land Surveying at diamondbacklandsurveying.com. Advanced Geodetic Surveys at agsgps.com. Tiger Supplies at tigersupplies.com. Cyanic Automation at getjobbook.com. Safety Apparel, you can find them at safetyapparel.us. And finally, Get Kids Into Survey at getkidsintosurvey.com.